You're listening to Nick Treadwell's Storyville. The Art of Protest. Where are our artists when we most need them? No one can deny that we are living through some of the most bonkers time in history. During the height of the recent lockdowns, I would wake up most mornings thinking I was living in some kind of alternative universe. I wondered if I was the only one that was actually getting that feeling that something was a little off. I kept looking around for people who had also smelled a giant rat and slowly but surely found that I was not on my own. There were others. I hoped that someone from the world of music, literature or film would do what they have always done, to use art as a way to speak out. I waited and waited. But there just seemed to be a complete wall of silence. Not all of us are bestowed with the ability to articulate verbally our deepest thoughts, feelings and fears. Even if we were, we might be too shy, embarrassed or scared of the consequences of laying ourselves bare for all to see and perhaps ridicule. We might lack the ability to recall the facts and figures of the situation, therefore afraid of making a complete ass of ourselves into the bargain. So we feel it better to just remain silent and let others do the talking for us. But when we find ourselves in a situation in which staying quiet might actually lead to suffering, harm or even death, we may have little choice but to swallow our pride and do the right thing. But that doesn't necessarily have to mean standing before our peers, family or friends trying to get the words out in the right order before they get either bored tired or just annoyed with us. There are other ways. Art has long been used as a vehicle to communicate radical ideas and to offer a voice to a worthy cause no matter what the medium. Whether it be painting, sculpture, theatre, film, TV, music or the written word, all of them have their own particular merits and appeal and can tap directly into the vein of the recipient, cutting right to the heart of the matter, so to speak. History has taught us that art always played its part during times of crisis, injustice and inequality, no matter how small or big. It's apparent now that our world is at a nexus point, as a number of monumental changes in our environment and social structure take place simultaneously including a technological revolution which has seen a push to increase more of what we do into the digital space. Add to this a rise to power of multi-million pound corporations and it's not hard to see where things are heading. We are constantly being warned of a collapse in our environment or of the financial and health systems. Sometimes it feels like we are being pressured to submit to actions to mitigate these crises without any public consultation, let alone any long-term study of the consequences. For example, during the last few years, large numbers of the population were pressured or persuaded into taking a brand new type of medical intervention without really knowing the mid- or long-term side effects for an illness which, for the most part, did not pose a serious health threat to the majority of healthy people. 
Following the rollout of said intervention, it became clear that its ability to be effective in shielding against the illness or preventing the spread was, to say the least, pretty poor. Not only that, but since the repeated application of this medicine, huge numbers of reports of serious life-changing side effects and deaths have been recorded and documented on government reporting systems around the world. And alarmingly, we now have a substantial rise in excess mortality around the world as the number of sudden unexplained deaths and heart attacks go through the roof. Despite this, and with reassurance from world leaders and the pharmaceutical industry that there is no link between the intervention, adverse reactions and death, we have on the other side of the coin a growing number of doctors and scientists who are coming forward with valid concerns. At the very least, would it not be sensible, given both the rapid rise in all-cause mortality, the noted serious adverse reactions and the growing outcry from health experts, to stop the intervention and launch a truly independent inquiry. But this has not happened, and we must ask ourselves why. I've not even mentioned the outrageous censorship of those experts that do speak out, or the fact that when those harmed do try to engage with their political representatives or the media, they are met with a brick wall of silence. On top of all of that, we must also wonder why established safe medicines that were proven to prevent illness in the early stages were seemingly banned or withdrawn from use. It seems to me that by now, our situation, by its very nature, should have signalled an explosion of art in response. But this seems not to be the case. There have been many works in multimediums that have sought to tell the story from one side of the coin, but very few who have been brave enough to address those difficult questions. For example, in music, I can only name a handful of musicians who have sought to use their influence and ability to highlight the glaring injustice. Van Morrison being the obvious one to mention with his 2020 anti-lockdown song, No More Lockdown. The world of comedy has more or less ignored the frankly hilarious government overreach of rules and regulations that were inflicted on the population. When this kind of material would normally be considered manna from heaven for any comic worth their salt. As for the rest of the arts and media world's leading lights, a big fat nothing. In fact, it has been up to those members of the public who have resisted the top-down tyranny to dip their feet into music or film to get their message across. Perhaps the art community needs to be reminded of its greatest moments of resistance, of its indelible connection to protest. So let's now take a look at some examples of how art has been used innovatively to highlight social injustice and political issues. Photography between 1948 and 1972, Gordon Parks was a staff photographer for Life magazine. His early work focused on exposing the harsh realities of social segregation in America during the civil rights movement. In 1966, Life sent him to photograph boxer Muhammad Ali, who had become a conscientious objector to the war in Vietnam on religious grounds. Parks managed to capture the boxer in a contemplative moment, sitting with head bowed, as if in prayer. 
his hands clad not in his boxing gloves but wrapped in white bandages. Parks's photograph, Doltest, documented the work of psychologists Dr. Kenneth Clark and Dr. Mamie Clark, who designed the infamous Doltests to study the effects of racial segregation on children. In their tests, the Clarks asked African-American children to express preferences for black or white dolls. In the photograph, a black boy is sitting at a desk while a white man dangles two dolls in front of him, one black and one white. Gordon Parks famously said, I saw that the camera could be a weapon against poverty, against racism, against all sorts of social wrongs. I knew at that point... I had to have a camera. Street art and mixed media. The anonymous graffiti artist Banksy has been known for his satirical street art since the early 1990s. His work has appeared on streets all over the UK, Europe and New York. His temporary outdoor installations have criticised capitalism, war, royalty and the establishment. One of his most famous works is called Love is in the Air, flower thrower, which depicts a masked man dressed in black, poised to throw not a Molotov cocktail or petrol bomb, but a bunch of flowers. The obvious message of love is in the air, being spread love and peace, not war and fear. In 2015, he and other artist friends created Dismal Land, Bemusement Park, with its tainted, run-down and frankly hostile atmosphere, it was more akin to a kind of apocalyptic amusement park. Many of its exhibits had a serious message though, such as the remote control boats featuring refugees or the spectacle of Cinderella's upturned carriage being eagerly photographed by a group of ruthless paparazzi. Graphic Design Graphic design has elevated many campaigns over the years, whether it be a poster, a symbol or a logo. Its contribution, being instantly recognisable, raises mass awareness. Perhaps one of the most successful designs and most easily recognisable is the one used in the campaign for nuclear disarmament, commonly known as the peace symbol. It was designed by British designer Gerald Holtham, in 1958 and has been used ever since. The design of the vertical and two diagonal lines inside the circle was based on the letter N and D in the flag semaphore system. Tom Ungerer's EAT poster from 1967 was one of many he designed in protest against the Vietnam War. The image shows the white arm of America shoving the Statue of Liberty down the throat of a Vietnamese citizen. Designed by students at the École de Beaux-Arts in 1968, the poster Borders Equals Repression was a direct response to the events of May that year when France reached a cultural turning point. A man shaded in stripes is shown behind a riot shield grasping a truncheon. Student strikes later became a national movement, with worker strikes bringing the country to a halt Many similar posters were seen on the streets at that time. During the 1970s and 80s, Japanese artist Masteru Aoba created a series of posters advocating non-violence and environmentalism, including War Waste Energy in 1981. On a red background, two jet fighters fly head-on into a waste bin. 
His goal was to encourage a more emphatic society. His work was so well received that he was later asked to design the official poster for the 1998 Winter Olympic Games in Nagano. Fine art. Paula Rigo was a Portuguese British contemporary artist who championed women's rights through her work, which often had elements of magical realism, fantasy, and the surreal. She used her art to highlight the dangers of illegal abortion in a series of pastels in 1998, which had such a huge impact that it influenced public opinion in a campaign for a second referendum, which saw the legalisation of abortion. In Detail of Human Cargo Triptych, 2007-2008, she drew attention to the horrific realities of human trafficking in three large images, depicting the pale faces and listless bodies of those being transported in the back of a lorry. Art is the only place you can do what you like. That's freedom. Paula Rigo. Painting. Guernica is a large oil painting, 4 times 8 metres, by Spanish artist Pablo Picasso. It was painted in response to the 26th of April 1937 bombing of Guernica in northern Spain by the Nazi regime. The attack was timed to maximise civilian casualties. Over three hours, 25 bombers dropped 100,000 pounds of explosives and incendiary bombs on the village, reducing it to rubble and killing a third of the population. Completed in only three weeks, Guernica shows the tragedies of war and the suffering it inflicts upon individuals, particularly innocent civilians. It is composed in black and white and shows images of a weeping woman with a dead child in her arms, a flying fury of war holding out a torch, a woman facing the heavens with outstretched arms, a woman trapped inside a burning building and a dead soldier whose severed arm carries a broken sword from which grows a white poppy. The chaotic scene conjures up intense feelings of fear, despair and destruction. The work has gained monumental status, becoming a perpetual reminder of the tragedies of war and an embodiment of peace. On completion, Guernica was displayed around the world in a brief tour, becoming famous and widely acclaimed. This tour helped bring the Spanish Civil War to the world's attention and raise money for Spanish refugees fleeing fascism. During the Vietnam War, it became a powerful anti-war symbol and continues to this day to be used by those who oppose war. It is said that when a German officer visited Picasso, he saw a photograph of Guernica on the wall and asked, Did you do that? To which Picasso replied, No, you did. Sculpture and Installation Bounty Pilford by artist Pam Longobardi is a cornucopia made of marine debris and filled with debris from the 2013 Guyrie Scientific Expedition and various other locations, featuring over 1,000 pieces of ocean plastic. Longobardi is an American contemporary artist currently living and working in Atlanta, Georgia. She is known primarily for her sculptural works and installations from plastic and debris collected from the ocean.
In 2006, she began the Drifters Project, collecting drift plastic to create her work. In 2013, she was selected to be the lead artist in the Gairi Expedition, an art-science research expedition that assembled a team of notable marine scientists, journalists, filmmakers and artists to trawl remote Alaskan coastlines and to document collaboratively the impacts of plastic pollution on these delicate ecosystems. The plastics tell a story of globalism, consumption, hubris, ecological disruption and waste of resources. But they also tell a story of intentionality, irony, and even a sense of humour. Pam Longobardi. Music. From the folk music of Guthrie, Dylan, and Seeger, the blues of Leadbelly, to the rock and pop of Springsteen and Rage Against the Machine, songwriters have always used the medium to raise awareness on a whole number of social and political issues. When it came to the oppressive clampdown of our freedoms during the recent lockdowns, though, with the implementation of an experimental medical procedure mandated in some parts of the world as a requirement to work, we strangely had muted silence from artists that had once gained a reputation as speaking out musically. Artists like Manic Street Preachers, Idols, Stormzy, U2, Billy Bragg, Peter Gabriel, Jackson Brown... Annie DiFranco and Roger Waters, to name but a few, were missing in action. Thankfully, we have had some pushback in the shape of Van Morrison, who has felt so deeply about the damage lockdown has caused that he has devoted his last two albums, 2021's latest recording project and 2022's What's It Gonna Take, to getting things off his chest. Bravely, he defied both the authorities and his critics by releasing the song No More Lockdowns at the height of the madness in September of 2020. The song's lyric leaves little to the imagination. No more lockdown. No more government overreach. No more fascist police disturbing our peace. No more taking our freedom and our God-given rights, pretending it's for our safety when it's really to enslave. Another voice that rose to the surface, albeit as a result of physical illness after having the experimental procedure, was blues and rock guitarist Eric Clapton. He added vocals and guitar to one of Van Morrison's anti-lockdown songs called Stand and Deliver, which was released in December 2020. Proceeds from Morrison's anti-lockdown tracks went to support his lockdown financial hardship fund, helping musicians facing difficulties from not being able to play. Clapton's own contribution, released in July 2022, is somewhat less direct than Morrison. On Pompous Fool, Clapton seems to be giving out a warning as to who we may choose to follow and let influence our thoughts. The song's lyric makes reference to dumping number 10, so it isn't hard to see who his song is aimed at. Do you want to laugh? Do you want to cry? Do you still believe in you and I? Is it your opinion that we should start again and turn the volume down from number 10? Don't you worry. Don't be blue. Let your woman take care of you. Live your life by the golden rule. Pay no mind to the pompous fool.
Ian Brown, the former Stone Roses frontman, also released a song in 2020 in which he questioned the lockdown and many other things. The song, called Little Seed Big Tree, is still banned by some streaming services to this very day, so he must have struck a nerve or even a chord with those who sought to silence him. Just a little seed makes a big tree, standing on its own, thriving all alone. Just a little seed makes a big tree, grows so high, gonna touch the sky. Just a little seed makes a big tree. Under the name of Slowhand and Van, Clapton and Morrison also released the song The Rebels in June 2021, which asked a very poignant question aimed squarely at the music establishment and perhaps at the wider arts community. Where have all the rebels gone? Hiding behind their computer screens. Where's the spirit? Where's the soul? Where have all the rebels gone? Why don't they come out of the woodwork now? One for the money, two for the show. I can't find anyone at all. Where have all the rebels gone? Animation. Flea. 2021, directed by Jonas Pohar Ramason, is an animated documentary feature film interspersed with archival TV footage to tell the true story of Amin and his family's escape from Afghanistan in 1989 after the Russian withdrawal. After Amin's father is taken by Mujahideen forces, the family flee to Kabul, where they take a flight to Moscow. They lay low, trying to avoid persecution by the corrupt authorities. Eventually, Amin's sisters are nearly killed after being trafficked to Sweden in a freight container on board a cargo ship. Later, Amin's life is also placed in the hands of a trafficker in order to join his family in Sweden, but instead ends up in Copenhagen, where he hands himself over to the authorities. Following his trafficker's advice and fearful that he will be sent back to Afghanistan, he tells everyone that his entire family have been killed. This was a secret he kept to himself and only opened up to telling Jonas many years later. In an interview for Screen in 2021, Jonas Poha Ramason said using the medium of animation was key. Having this way of telling the story was what made the film feel safe enough to open up. Waltz with Bashir, 2008, directed by Ari Folman, is a feature-length animated film in which the director seeks to recover lost memories of being a soldier in the 1982 Lebanon War. After meeting an old friend in 2006 who talks about his memories of the war, Ari begins to wonder why he cannot recall his own part. Later that night he has a vision in which he is bathing in the water off the coast of Beirut as flares fall from the sky. He recognises that the vision is connected to the Sabra and Shatila massacre, but only remembers certain fragments. A therapist friend advises Ari to seek out other soldiers who were in Beirut at the time in order to gain a better understanding and hopefully regain his memory. The film explores the effect trauma has on memory. Fiction Without question, fiction has been the genre where writers can express their true feelings of anger, fear, sorrow or even hope on all kinds of dystopian subjects. 
Classic novels such as 1984 and Brave New World have looked into the possibility of a dark future and told the story of how humanity may end up. A warning, so to speak, wrapped up in the lines of imagination. The Accusation, Forbidden Stories from Inside North Korea, is a 2014 collection of seven short stories smuggled out of North Korea. It was written by a North Korean writer still living under the regime going by the pen name of Bandy, which translates to Firefly in English. The stories are set during the North Korean rule of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il's leadership, depicting what life was really like for those living under the dictatorship. Bandy apparently wrote it on brown paper starting in 1989 and finishing in 95. He then asked a relative who was illegally leaving North Korea to smuggle it out of the country, but they declined, fearful of retribution from the authorities. Later in 2012, the relative was captured in China, so an activist paid the bribe to free her and later arranged for the manuscript to be discreetly taken out of the country. Once upon a time, there was a garden, surrounded on all sides by a great high fence. In that garden, an old demon ruled over thousands upon thousands of slaves. But the surprising thing was that the only sound ever to be heard within those high walls was the sound of merry laughter. Ha 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 and ho 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 all year round because of the laughing magic which the old demon had used on his slaves. Why did he use such magic on them? To conceal his evil mistreatment of them, of course, and also to create a deception, saying, this is how happy the people are in our garden. And that's also why he put the fences up, so that the people in other gardens couldn't see over or come in. So, well, think about it. Where in the world might you find such a garden, such a den of evil magic, where cries of pain and sadness were wrenched from the mouths of its people and distorted into laughter? Excerpt from Pandemonium, a short story included in the book The Accusation, by Bandy. The Jungle is a 1906 novel about the exploitation of immigrant factory workers, particularly in Chicago's meatpacking district. The book actually led to the passing of the Federal Meat Inspection Act. The author, Upton Sinclair, depicts working-class poverty, lack of social support, harsh and unpleasant work conditions, and the hopelessness among many workers. Contrasted to this was the deep-seated corruption of those in power. Sinclair was considered a muckraker, a journalist who uncovered deceit and dishonesty in government and business. He spent several weeks working undercover in the meatpacking plants of the Chicago stockyards to gather the material he needed for the book. All truly great art is optimistic. The individual artist is happy in his creative work. The fact that practically all great art is tragic does not in any way change the above thesis. Upton Sinclair Indian Horse is a 2012 novel by Richard Wagamese, who was writing about the culture, stories and history of the First Nations of Canada for many years up until his death in 2017. 
The plot amalgamates many experiences of native children who were forced into the residential school system to accept the values and ethos of Christianity and relinquish any connection to their own language, spirituality and ancestors. Many of these children suffered trauma, abuse and ill treatment at the hand of those who were charged with their care. The protagonist of the novel, Saul, endures this repressive school system himself and finds escape from it with a talent for playing ice hockey. It's an important, well-told piece of fiction that speaks for many children who found that later in life they had turned to drugs and alcohol to deal with the pain of the past. Children who were effectively let down by the government. The book won the 2013 Burt Award for the First Nations Matisse and Inuit Literature and was made into a feature film in 2017 after Wagamese died. I learned how to live through adversity in the library. I learned how words and music can empower you, show you the world in a sharper, cleaner, more forgiving way. I became a writer because of what I found in libraries and I found the song that still reverberates in my chest. I'm a better man, a better human being and a better Indian because of the freedom in words and music. Richard Wagamese, One Native Life, 2008 Poetry The spoken or written word as poetry often offers us a very direct, undiluted route to the heart of the matter at hand, which is why it has been used very successfully through the years as a means to disseminate a dissident view. In 1819, Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote The Mask of Anarchy in response to the Peterloo Massacre in which a large public protest was held at St Peter's Fields in Manchester calling for political reform, following political corruption, harsh working conditions and low pay. When radical speaker Henry Hunt began speaking, the army attempted to arrest him and attack anyone who got in the way, resulting in at least 15 people being killed and 400 being injured. As a consequence, Hunt was sentenced to two years imprisonment, meetings of more than 50 at any one time were banned and there was a tax on newspapers which prevented people from being able to afford them and to be less likely to publish anything negative about the government. Shelley heard of the massacre from a friend and was so moved that he wrote The Mask of Anarchy, calling for radical social action and non-violent resistance. The poem takes the form of a dream in which a political crisis is turned into an apocalyptic vision in which Britain's true anarchists are its leaders, perpetrating fear and disorder with delight. The followers of anarchy, the lawyers and priests, take possession of palace, bank and parliament and are only challenged by a maniac maid called Hope. Though it appears she is about to be trampled by horses' hooves, a form appears to challenge anarchy the ghastly birth. A voice encouraging the people to seize freedom rises up. There is a great assembly, a gathering of people, whose steadfast resolution eventually defeats the troops and soldiers. The title of the poem comes from the hideous masquerades that monarchs stage to celebrate their power. The poem's finale invites those who have been asleep to wake. Rise like lions after slumber. In unvanquishable number shake your chains to earth like dew which in sleep had fallen on you ye are many 
They are few. Bringing things a bit more up to date, in 2017, a poetry anthology entitled Bullets Into Bells was published on the fifth anniversary of the Sandy Hook shooting. The book is a powerfully emotive response to the continued problem of gun crime in America by a host of poets with responses to each poem by activists and survivors. Each of the poems in the book is a time machine that records the moment when normal life ended with the shot of a gun. In the Dark by Jack Myers is just one of those haunting poems written for his son Jacob who died in 2009 after taking his own life. Anger and sorrow have split off from me like twin tree trunks. I think I will grow in opposite directions like this from now on, watching the fruit of what I can hardly bear open. When I dared to look at my son's ashes, I said, Focus, but I could not accept that this was what's left of my boy who, just yesterday, freshened the world with his jasmine presence. I would have jumped in front of the bullet, I would have killed for him, but he was the one who took his life, leaving me swirling in mid-air while the world emptied itself out and became more meaningless and precious. I am struck dumb, twisted inward, and folded over by something so final that I have sworn to stay alive just to spite death just so I can stick a thumb in its eye and then follow through, looking for my son in the dark. In the time it has taken to research this essay, I have been on a whirlwind voyage of discovery into the relationship between art and protest. I have been overwhelmed by the creativity, imagination and emotion of artists to use their skills in order to speak those fundamental human truths of equality, peace and justice for all. It seems to me, in those moments when we are at our lowest, when we have our backs against the wall with nothing else to lose, we can find our voice and raise it in the only way that we know how. But what troubles me about our present predicament is that we seem to have lost those crucial voices of artists with strong ethics, values and merit who should be stepping forward into the light to raise awareness of the injustices that have taken place in recent years. Why are we not seeing an unveiling of canvases, manuscripts, verses and stanzas in an explosion of art? Could it be that artists are fearful of rejection or scorn damaging their career? Surely any society that seeks to censor the creative act is one that has become seriously ill and in need of a complete reassessment. Fear of reputation or financial loss should not enter into the equation when the stakes are so high. Each of us should be playing our own part, including those that are bestowed with the skills of pen, brush, lens or melody. Art urgently needs to enter the conversation on where our future is heading, to voice the will of the people in its own radical and imaginal style. Alan Moore British comic book author. There's a widespread cultural barrenness across art and political culture, but there are some pockets of resistance on the extreme margins, like the techno-savvy protest movements, small press, the creator-owned comics, that seem to be getting some signs of hope for the future. Diego Rivera, Mexican painter. The role of the artist is that of the soldier in the revolution. Jeremy Della, 
English conceptual video and installation artist. How important is art as a form of protest? Very. Paul Robeson, American actor and musician. Artists are the gatekeepers of truth. We are civilization's radical voice. Pete Seeger, American folk singer. In the largest sense, every work of art is protest. A lullaby is a propaganda song, and any three-year-old knows it. A hymn is a controversial song. Sing one in the wrong church, you'll find out. Edward Hirsch, American poet and critic. Writing becomes a form of protest against the incontestable ravages of time. The poet takes revenge on mortality, defeating cruelty and saving what she can by thinking the unthinkable and presiding over her own creation. The joy of writing stands against the bitter knowledge of just how much of the world cannot be controlled outside the work of art. This is the art of poetry trying to kill time. Probably. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nick Treadwell's Storyville. Please subscribe if you liked what you heard and be sure to check out my Substack blog, Letters from Storyville, at nicktreadwell.substack.com.